Hello, and welcome to What's the Big Idea? I'm your host, Michelle Tuck Ponder. Today's episode is brought to you by Destination Imagination, commonly referred to as DI, which is the leading creative problem-solving experience for children. Through DI's innovative, project-based educational experiences, participants gain the skills that will set them up for success in careers like the one we're gonna talk about today. Learn more about DI at www.destinationimagination.org. On today's episode, we are pleased to welcome Sean Kimber. Dr. Kimber is a professor of mathematics and the newly appointed Dean of the College at Washington and Lee University. She most recently served as head of the mathematics department at Lafayette College, where she co-created the summer program to advance leadership in STEM. In addition to her accomplishments in mathematics, Sean is a renowned visual artist and her quilting work has been featured in museums and galleries throughout the United States, including a show at the Paul Mellon Art Center and a residency at Appalachian State University. Her piece entitled The One for Eric, inspired by the death of Eric Garner, won first place at QuiltCon West in 2016. Joining us today from Easton, Pennsylvania, please welcome Sean Kimber. Welcome to What's the Big Idea? I'm so thrilled to be here. Yay. <laughs> well, I'm very excited. And in the interest of full disclosure, I have to say that um, Sean and I know each other because she has been a teacher. She's taught me and many people who are listening to this broadcast know I'm a quilter. And um, Sean has been my teacher. She has been my inspiration, not only in quilting, but in her stands on social justice and her voice for speaking your truth. So I want to say that in advance and welcome you. I'm so excited that you're here. I'm excited too. It's an honor to know you, Michelle. You know. Um, oh, you know, you know, right back at you. So one thing I don't know, I know a lot about your quilting, but I don't know a lot about yourself, your background and your job. I know you're from the South though, correct? 100% Southern. Yeah, my father's family is from Alabama. My mother's family is from South Carolina. So you would call us a blended family because those are very different Southern cultures, the, the coastal cultures, um, right? My mother's Geechee Gullah, if you've ever heard of um, that culture. And that could not be any more different than the mountains of Alabama. <laughs> I grew up in Tallahassee, Florida, still deep south. It's right on the Georgia border. And so that really very much uh, colors who I am in terms of how I deal with uh, person to person. Um, living near New Jersey for a while has really illustrated some of those sort of regional differences in sort of local cultures. Um, but I don't know. What else do you want to know about me? Well, how did you end up at Lafayette College? Well, the very crass way of saying it is that um, the market for getting hired as a professor just depends on who retired or died the previous year. 
And so Lafayette actually had um, four openings the year that I graduated from graduate school. And I could not be more thrilled to be associated with the other three people who were hired with me that same year. In fact, three of us interviewed at yet another small college at the same time and all ended up going uh you know, turning that school down. So we're a bit notorious as a small group of professors. <laughs> um, now, were you always a, a, a math person? Um, so, you know, again, that Southern culture, right? Women were not supposed to be into science and um, technology. And so I hid it for a long, long time. So um, when I took calculus in high school, I even like put extra book covers on it. So, but, it, you know, it's such a big book. People knew what it was, but I, I put flowery paper on the outside so that I wouldn't be marked as, you know, a math nerd. But I truly was. That was the class that really kind of captured my interest. But I was an engineering major when I started at University of Florida. And, you know, just it's such a ginormous university where your classes are just a thousand students at a time. But my all of my math classes were small because I was a bit more advanced in the sequences. And my math professors kind of knew me as a person and were very encouraging of what I was doing, whereas the engineering professors, I still hadn't met any of them yet. <laughs> and so I ended up changing my major mostly because I was being treated as a person, but also because the courses just got getting more and more interesting over time. Okay. So was there a particular moment in it where you, you kind of looked at engineering and then you looked at, at math or a mentor or an experience where you said, I'm shifting, like this is, I, I'm going to do something different. Absolutely. Yeah. So I kept taking, so you have to take a certain number of math electives for your engineering degree. So while I was taking all the intro science courses, I was pretty advanced in the math classes. And I took this abstract algebra class with a professor named Jorge Martinez, who, by the way, later became my doctoral advisor (laughs) um, many years later. But he was, um, and he recently passed away, Um, but he was just sort of, you know, homo universale, just this broadly um, interested in everything, not just math and science, but he wrote novels and he was into, you know, good food and wine and just knew how to be a good person. While also being awesome at doing math. (laughs) And so it gave me this sense that I wouldn't have to give up anything of who I am in order to be a mathematician and that he would engage his young students in these broad ranging conversations from the beginning, recognizing your full humanity um, really kind of engaged me on every possible level. And so it was very easy to give up those classes with a thousand students where I was just a a number to my professors in physics and chemistry and engineering. So So what inspired you to keep going, though, because you clearly you had a B.A. or I'm sorry, B.S. and you could have just gone off and done something else. But you pursued a doctorate, which is pretty awesome. What inspired you to do that? Uh, Two things. Um, 
I am a competitive person and both of my parents had master's degrees. <laughs> and so I decided I should get one more degree than they had. Um, but I never quite, and I decided that pretty early in my life, <laughs> but I had no idea what field it would be in. Um, and it just ended up being that math was the right thing. And uh, the year that I graduated was a pretty bad recession. And so there were no jobs to be had. I had thought that I wanted to do a job to take a break from school. Mm -hmm. And I ended up being path of least resistance was to go to grad school. And then once you're in, you're hooked. It's a bit of a cult. Um, <laughs> and you really kind of buy into this system of, you know, being broken down in your first year and rebuilt um, to be, well, I mean, it's not as bad as it sounds, um, but maybe actually it is, but um, you, you kind of start to feel yourself transformed into a much more capable thinker, generally speaking, not just in, not just about math and your critical capabilities just increase and your analytical, you know, and so I kind of bought into this system of being rebuilt and kind of then set off into the world to do good things with these new skills. Um, so, which right, which is what you do as a as a professor. I have a math kid. Uh, my son is is very skilled at math, and he has two parents who are not. We, we, we fight the notion that there is an answer and he always finds the answer. And so it's, I'm really interested and encouraged by what you're saying, because as a, as a black young man, I, there is some fear that I have about him finding that person to mentor him. So you started a program at Lafayette called the Program to Advance Leadership in STEM. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Is that about mentoring um, kids mm -hmm. of color or any special group, women, whatever? It absolutely is. Um, so I, I, along with the director of engineering at the time, her name's Sharon Jones, um, and she's now out on the West Coast somewhere. Um, but she and I kind of noticed that there was a deficit in terms of the diversity of students earning honors uh, at graduation in our STEM majors. And so we developed this program that would meet students um, in the middle of the incoming class. So it's not a remedial program and pull them out, give them a bunch of um, enrichment at the beginning of their college careers, then provide four years of mentoring in the hopes that they would come out with honors or just becoming academic leaders, but then also setting them up for true success in their careers afterwards. And so we particularly focused on women in STEM, which is also still in a deficit in the United States, and um, minorities, people from low-income households, those who were first in their family to go to college, and then also Lafayette has a geographic uh, uh, weirdness in that most of our students come from the three states nearby, and so the donor who funded the program is from the West Coast and wanted us to also focus on geographic diversity, and so it's a you know a mishmash in terms of uh, all those characteristics because almost any student could qualify <laughs> under all those categories, but we make sure it's half women. And then from there, um, it's probably the most diverse group that a student uh, could be in at Lafayette. Mm -hmm. 
And that's a formula that works, that that mentoring and that support and early on letting young people know that this is the path. It's not you. You're not, you know, there's nothing wrong with you. We're we're deliberately tearing you down to build you back up. No, we don't do that. (laughs) We are absolutely meeting the student where they are and showing them the path that they can take from where they are when they come here. None of it is about fixing them. It's actually about us finding the ways to fix the institution to fit more people in. That is that is very, very cool. You know, it, at DI, we we focus on the four C's, communication, collaboration, critical thinking and creativity. And one of our challenges is reaching um, populations who don't have the opportunity to learn and exercise those skills um, in in the STEM space or we actually it's in the STEAM space more for us. But um, how do you use those four C's in your work? Do you do you find that those are skills that um, are important in your work, whether it's as an administrator, which I know it's a big part of what you do and, and also in the classroom? Okay, so let's recap the four C's. You said communication, mm-hmm. collaboration, creativity, and critical. Oh, yeah. Okay, those four C's are everything that I do. Okay, so critical thinking is about being analytical and um, not accepting things for, for face value. So mathematicians are some of the worst people to try to have a conversation with because we question every sentence and the logical construction of what you're trying to tell us. Um, we want to make sure we fully understand and see how one thing follows from another. Um, but in particular, that's what helps us have really uh, robust science programs, right? So math is the language of all the sciences and that critical thinking is at the base of what we do in STEM. We are highly collaborative. So all of my research is done in concert with other faculty members. And um, it is all about the additive property of two people working on something, making it better than any any two individuals could do. Communication, absolutely no doubt. Mathematics is a very verbal science. Um, again, it is all constructed on the, the, the logic of our, our language. Um, but also just being able to communicate as a teacher is hugely, it's almost all that I do as a professor is to communicate to different audiences, understanding how to calibrate the language, Uh, understand the different goals of different conversations and um, to be persuasive when need be. Um, Communication, collaboration, creativity. Oh my goodness. So uh, new things only come from being creative. If we just accept tradition and only do traditional things going into the future, then we aren't going to make any progress. So we are, it is a highly collaborative and creative thing that we do in our industry as mathematicians, but also in STEM overall. So what has been the biggest challenge um, of in regard to doing all these things during COVID? Yeah. Um, so certainly for me, I've been teaching over Zoom, doing remote teaching, and all of my communication is remote. Um, and 
that is hard. There's so much in the body language um, when we're talking to people. There's so much that's revealed about the struggles that my students might be having, no matter where they are, whether they're on, on our campus or at home and dealing with additional struggles that wouldn't be there if we were in the regular learning environment that are kind of hidden when you're on Zoom. And so it takes a little extra effort for me to reach out to my students as individuals and make sure that they're being taken care of. And that's, it's just, the job is probably four to five times what it normally is because we, we can't just deal with what the cues you normally just pick up on because you're in the presence of your students. I absolutely understand that. Well, we're going to take a break. Um, for a moment, and we will be back with Dr. Sean Kimber. Do you enjoy working with young people? Are you looking for a way to make a difference? Then you might be a great team manager for Destination Imagination. A team manager serves as a mentor to a team of seven students and guides them through the creative process. DI provides training and a flexible schedule, then the rest is up to you. DI teams are forming all over the world, but we need you to put your local team on the map. Help us empower the leaders and innovators of tomorrow. Volunteer as a team manager today. Find out more at destinationimagination.org slash the big idea. So we're back talking to Dr. Sean Kimber, um, professor of mathematics at Lafayette College. And um, I'm interested in trying to figure out the nexus um, between your work and your um, interest and expertise in mathematics and in visual art. Um, what's it like to be involved in both of those fields? And do you find there's overlap in your skills as an artist and mathematician and vice versa? Um, so I think that there are interesting avenues of thought to pursue in thinking about what creativity means to different people in the world, right? So my creativity as a scientist, I think, plays out differently than my creativity as a visual artist. And part of that is that I am improvisational in the artwork that I do. I just follow instincts and I do a lot of yes ands. So just accepting the outcome of one step and then using that to progress in the creation of my art. Whereas I'm more intentional in my science and my science creativity, it is governed by a set of rules that can be overbearing <laughs> from time to time. And so in one space, I'm free, I'm liberated. And in the other one, I'm confined um, in some ways. <laughs> and so there is a difference there, but there is a way in which that they they enhance each other by practicing being improvisational. I think that it makes me a little freer in the creativity that I pursue in my science and vice versa. My my quilts can certainly uh, benefit from a little more control from time to time. <laughs> um, but I would say that uh, I do these as separate things that uh, are separate parts of who I am. So I'm not making mathematical quilts, you know, directly related to mathematical themes. Um, I am exploring the other part of my humanity, my commitment to human rights for everyone. And um, those expressions and my um, tendency to want to 
teach people about what's going on in the world and expose them to new ideas. Um, yeah, I hope that answers that question. You know, it did, because one of the things that I find interesting is that when quilters talk about improvisational quilting, I think a lot of people think it just means throwing a bunch of stuff together and and not ever having any thought of precision or order or plan. And when you do that, because I've made that mistake, it looks just like what, what I said. You just threw a whole bunch of stuff together and that improvisation is actually thoughtful and precise yes yes i am highly precise in my improv yes Uh, especially because i use very small pieces and you Mm -hmm. can't be imprecise there so oh i absolutely agree yeah and you know i even stopped myself as i was explaining earlier that math was governed by a lot of rules because actually in improvisation the best uh, outcomes usually come from setting a set of rules from the beginning that you kind of follow that provide a boundary so that what you make doesn't look like clown barf, um, <laughs> which is always a potential outcome. <laughs> I, I think what I struggle with is that I don't, I get very bored with following patterns and, and quilter precision makes me crazy. This, this, we all have to be perfect and all the points have to meet on one hand, but you can't totally abandon that in your improvisational work as well. So, so I'm still, I'm still working on that. But, but the other thing I wanted to talk about, your most famous piece is about um, the, the murder of Eric Gardner and um, the I Can't Breathe quilt. And what, have you been inspired beyond that quilt, um, which, you know, has been seen all over the world and 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 it admired because it, it really illustrated sort of the, the end of that man's life? Have have you been moved um, by any other social justice issue to create something or at least have it planted in your head that there's something there? Absolutely. So. Prior to the Eric Garner quilt, I made one for Trayvon Martin um, that is actually more of a representational art piece Mm -hmm. of self-portraits of myself in a hoodie because the hoodie became iconic that, you know, on conservative media, it was stated, well, if he wasn't wearing the hoodie, there wouldn't have been a problem. He'd still be alive today, which is just this ridiculous fashion statement. Um, But I would say that currently I am exploring actually what it means to be alive as a black person in the United States today, um, which of course brings with it um, the fear, uh, daily fear of being here. Um, And so I recently made a quilt whose it's a poem and the last line is I am still not free and the poem sort of builds up I I am I am still I am not still I am still not free and it was just this reflection on how my life as a black person in the United States is different from my neighbors who's a white woman um that Day to day, I do not have the same freedoms as she does. And you only have to think about the case of Ahmad Arbery, who was killed while taking a jog through his neighborhood. Um, or Christian Cooper, who went to uh, Central Park in New York to just 
look at birds. <laughs> uh, just just imagine that your hobby is looking at birds. And um, he asked a woman to put her dog back on leash, which of course is part of the law in, in the city. And she refused and immediately called the police um, and reported a false, made a false report of assault um, on this black man. And, you know, just fully knowing what she was doing he had the potential to be killed by the police when they showed up and all he was trying to do was look at birds. <laughs> like, can you believe it? Now I just, you know, I cannot just keep letting this go on. I had to make the commentary. The back of that quote is the preamble of the U S constitution, just in case you didn't get the message from the front. Um, and you know, these, this will be the theme that I continue exploring for a little while. What does it mean to live in the United States today? Yeah, what does it mean to live in the United States today? It means that I don't want my son to grow up. He's 14. Mm -hmm. I wish he were still 11. <laughs> you know, like <laughs> how that's so crazy. But no, I don't because now I'm afraid. Right. And I'm going to be afraid probably for as long as I live which is um, is not something I think that people realize and appreciate. So so I appreciate your work because you reach a group of people who, shall we say, are in large part really conservative and um, are shocked and amazed by all the audacity that we have as quilters to actually speak up about injustice in America. Because after all, all we want to do is quilt. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> <laughs> ask you if you weren't quilting and being a professor of mathematics what would you be doing so what would I be doing if I weren't a professor or a dean um I really I think I okay we play pretend when we're little kids and typically we pretend to be the thing that we admire most and my heroes were always my teachers so i think that there's absolutely no doubt that i would be a teacher and maybe not a professor but absolutely a teacher somewhere somehow of anything uh and it's just i there's, I was on that path from the beginning. Now it could be because I was a bossy little kid. And so when I was playing with my friends, I wanted to play and we were playing school. I wanted to play the teacher. So then I would be in charge, but you know, maybe that's admitting too much. Um, but yeah, I would absolutely be a teacher. There's no doubt that it's my calling. So now we have a, a, a what we like to call a fun section of our program and it's called rapid fire. And it's yes or no answers. Uh-oh. Okay. Are you ready? I think so. All right. Yes or no. Will robots ultimately come for your job? No. Is social media the best or the worst? The worst. <laughs> and the best. It's both. <laughs> and yes or no. Does pineapple belong on pizza? Yes. Oh my gosh. How can this be debated? Oh, pineapple and pepperoni or pineapple and sausage. If I can go further than just a yes answer here. I don't know. It's sweet. And I'm going to take your Jersey card. <laughs> oh, delicious. I never claimed to be from Jersey. <laughs> 
I understand. So, <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm so glad you came, you came to be with us today. Is there anything else? One last question. Is there anything else you'd like for us to know before we wrap up? Um, it just math is the best thing ever. And what big ideas excite you now? That was two last questions, but um, yeah. Um, So there's, you know, obviously grand unified theory. Um, Can we truly understand the universe? Um, What are black holes? Where will we be living in the future? Are we going to really be inhabiting Mars? I'm not sure. Uh, It's just, yeah, I'm I'm more interested in like the frontiers of human life. Cool. Well, I am so delighted that you came to talk to us today here at What's the Big Idea. On our program, we'd like to acknowledge that this episode of What the Big Idea was recorded on land, originally inhabited and cultivated by the Lenape and Shawnee Nations. We are grateful for this land and for the people who have stewarded it for generations. This episode was produced by Kelsey Selleck with additional material provided by Don Afero and Chris Beisel and music by Kevin McLeod. Special thanks to our wonderful guest, Dr. Sean Kimber, for joining us today. And you can learn more about Sean and her work by checking her out on Instagram at Koshi Complete. And to learn more about our show and about how DI can fuel even more big ideas, visit us at destinationimagination.org. I'm Michelle Tuck-Ponder. Thanks for joining us and have a terrific day filled with big ideas. The U.S. Department of Labor estimates that 65% of today's students will be employed in jobs that have yet to be invented. We have no way of knowing what those jobs will entail. But we do know that the skills that will prepare them for success are the skills that they can develop through destination imagination. Hi, I'm Chris Beisel, Director of Training for Destination Imagination. I was a team manager for 15 years and 22 teams before I joined the staff. Being a team manager was the best thing that I did for all my children. Destination Imagination, or DI, is an international project-based competition that reinforces the four C's, communication, collaboration, critical thinking, and creativity. You probably heard about those skills in today's episode, and DI is the place where kids like yours develop those skills for themselves. Students work together in small teams to create solutions to a challenge. DI's team challenges fall into one of seven categories, scientific, technical, engineering, fine arts, improvisation, service learning, and for our younger children, early learning. A DI team selects one of those seven challenges and prepares a solution to present to the local tournament. Throughout the experience, students create projects, solve problems, build relationships, learn new concepts, and have a great time in the process. We're building the workforce of the future. Today's DI participants are tomorrow's innovators, problem solvers, and leaders. If that sounds like a good fit for you and the young people in your life, we would love to have you join us. To get started today, visit destinationimagination.org slash learn more.